Hello. Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. This week's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Our Father, thank you that you have blessed us with so many resources here at the University of New South Wales. Thank you so much, Father, for the way that you have given us each other, lots of people to study your word with and that you've spoken to us so that we can learn about you and know about you. Father, please teach us now as we come to this passage, please help us to understand more about Jesus so that we can respond to him the right way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may not know this about me, but a few years ago, I tried to be a vegan. And it was not just to make myself more popular at parties. No, I can't eat that. No, I can't eat that either. And no, I can't eat that. Now, I didn't just convert to veganism to become a leper. Uh, I had a bit of a health scare, although it was really just a little bit of attention-seeking behaviour. They called it a heart attack, but, uh, you know, I I think it was just attention-seeking. Anyway, there was a small amount of evidence that um, a vegan diet might do something good for dodgy hearts. And so for two whole years, I gave it a crack. I was a vegan for two whole years. Not sure whether it did much to help my heart, but it gave me one important life lesson that I want to pass on to you today. What is this important life lesson? Well, it occurred to me when I was eating this particular vegan product, tofurkey. And everyone say, yum. Yeah, that's the spirit. Yeah, that's... I think you've understood tofurkey. I think you've, uh, you're well on the way to learning this beautiful life lesson. Although tofurkey isn't the only vegan product that could teach you this important life lesson. You could also learn it from incognito. 
You could learn it from, what have we got next? Not dogs. You could learn it from vegan tuna. Oh, and it probably tastes as good as it looks. And you could even learn it from cheese. Yes. And if you go out to a cafe, you could learn it from Facon and Fleg Roll. Yeah. So this life lesson wasn't just learning how to do really bad puns, okay? There's, there's a real, there's an important life lesson that I did truly learn from veganism. It is this. When something is pretending to be something else, it's usually not very good. When something is trying to be something it is not, it usually doesn't work very well. That's a pretty important life lesson for you to learn, isn't it? Pretty important. See, I think tofu just needs to man up and be itself. It's not such a bad guy. I like tofu, in fact, much better when tofu is just trying to be tofu. I have no problems with tofu being themselves. But when tofu is trying to be other things, ooh, very rarely succeeds. Now, this life lesson, do you think we could ever make the tofurkey mistake in our own lives? Do you think you and I could ever sort of fail to live truly to who we truly are? Now, perhaps your first question might be, how do you know who you truly are? How do you even work out who you truly are? And a lot of people, I think, jump the wrong way on this one. They turn to their feelings. What do I feel like? Who do I feel like I truly am? I'm not sure that your feelings are a really good guide to who you truly are. I'm not sure they're, they're the thing that you should first trust to understand who you truly are. The best way to understand who you truly are is to listen to the God who created you, who will tell you who you truly are. And the God who created you and who can save you through Jesus Christ and who can transform your life and transform your identity, he has actually spoken clearly about who you truly are. And so today we are looking at the opening verses of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote almost 2,000 years ago to Christians who were living in the Greek city of Corinth. Now, lots of people wrote lots of letters to other people in the first century. Why are we still reading this one? Well, it's because this one, like a few others that were like it, have been collected together for us in the New Testament of the Bible because they are the way that God has chosen to speak to us today. The letters written by the apostles chosen by Jesus. Now this isn't just a random letter from a random citizen. This is a letter that has been commissioned by God for the teaching of his people. You start to see that reality when you read the first few words of this letter. Have a look at them with me. Uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of this letter, he is an apostle. His name is Paul and he's not just any apostle, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle literally just means one who is sent. So if I sent you right now on an errand, I could call you an apostle. That's what an apostle means. It's just one who is sent. And the apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this letter, he's saying he's been sent 
by Jesus Christ, according to the will of God the Father. For he's been sent for this important task of, of communicating, of speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ like an envoy, like an ambassador, like a representative of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you one of my favourite little hacks for reading Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament. See, we've, we've got about 13 letters written by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament and they nearly always follow the same introductory formula, nearly always the same style of introduction. And, well, it was the, it was the pattern of letter writing in the first century. Well, it was built on that. But the Apostle Paul always has his own little twists. In each letter, the, the normal letter, uh, you know, introduction address, the Apostle Paul just twists it a little bit and he twists it to show you the things that are on his mind that he's going to address later in the letter. And so um, the first thing you do is you introduce yourself. And even in the way Paul introduces himself, you might be able to get a few little hints about some of the issues that are going on in this letter. Did you notice how Paul really went out of his way to introduce himself and say, Apostle of Christ Jesus, chosen or called by the will of God. He's, he's making sure that you understand that he hasn't just gone down to seek.com and uh, found this job and, and, and given it a crack. Chosen by God, by the will of God, called. And then, um, then he introduces the people or he addresses the people that he's writing to. And so you, you can see it there. Um, and there's a few little hints in, in verse 2 about these. And we'll get to them in a moment. We'll, we'll think a little bit more about them at the moment. And then, um, well, he always, or nearly always, there's one letter where he doesn't, and that's the twist that really helps you understand that letter. But in nearly all of his letters, he then has a thanksgiving section to tell the people he's writing to about the things that he thanks God for about them. And that tells you, that section, usually a lot about the important themes that he's going to discuss later in the letter. I'm going to leave you to kind of have a bit more of a think about that in verses 4 to 8. We're going to dig into them in a little bit in a moment, but you might like to go back and think, oh, what am I expecting in the rest of the letter from this Thanksgiving section? There's the hack. I think it's really helpful for 13 different letters. Um, you can use it whenever you uh, read those letters. Now you understand the opening structure of Paul's letters a little bit better. Let's dig into the important theological issues in our passage today. We're at point one which is three surprising truths. As Paul addresses these Christians in Corinth, he reveals what I think are three surprising truths about them. And the first surprising truth is that these struggling Christians are holy. Have a look at verse 2 again. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I don't know whether you know it, but a saint is literally someone who has been sanctified. A saint is someone who has been sanctified. Well, what does, uh, what does being sanctified mean? Well, to be sanctified is literally to be made holy. That's why we're talking about holiness, because the Apostle Paul mentioned that these Corinthians are sanctified in Christ Jesus and they have been called to be saints. The Apostle Paul is calling these struggling Christians holy. 
But I don't know whether you've ever read through the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. As you read through it, you might find that these struggling Christians don't look very holy. So they are bickering over which apostle they should follow. They are arrogantly boasting about who is the smartest and the most gifted among them. One of them is sleeping with his stepmother. Others of them are taking court action against each other. They seem to be visiting prostitutes and they are struggling with idolatry. As a group of Christians, these Corinthians don't look very holy. So if these Corinthian Christians didn't look very holy, how is it that the Apostle Paul can call them sanctified, can call them saints? One of the things we do here at the Bible Talks is um, I get your good brain thinking a little bit for yourself. And the way we do that is by, um, well, I put a question up on the screen and I throw it to you and with the person next to you, I give you 30 seconds to just have a little think about it. You don't have to come up with the right answer. I just want you thinking. I just want you talking a little bit with the person next to you, thinking hard before we dig into it together. So there's the question. You've got 30 seconds. Enjoy. Okay, let's try and work this out together. These messy Corinthians, they actually really help us to understand an important truth about sanctification. Holiness is not something we can achieve for ourselves through behavioural improvement. Holiness is something Jesus achieves for us through his death on the cross. You see, to be holy literally means to be set apart for God. That is the truest definition of holiness, to be set apart for God. And the Old Testament taught this truth really well. See, the priests who worked in the temple, they were called holy because they were set apart from all the other jobs outside the temple, all the other jobs that everyone else did. The priests were set apart from those jobs so they could do one job, that is serve God in the temple. They were holy for that particular service. Now, even the utensils they used to serve God in the temple were called holy. Why? Because those utensils weren't to be used, you know, outside the temple for any old thing. They were holy, set apart, just for that particular role of serving God in the temple. Holiness does not mean moral superiority. Holiness means being set apart for God. So you don't get sanctified by improving your behaviour and becoming a little bit more morally superior. Christians are sanctified by the work of Jesus for us at the cross. That is what sets Christians apart for God. And this is why um, also the Roman Catholic view of saints is very unhelpful. See, sainthood is not just reserved for a few select elevated Christians. Sainthood refers to the sanctity of all believers in Jesus who have been set apart for God through the sanctifying work of Jesus at the cross. These new Corinthian converts probably didn't look very holy, but human behaviour is not how true holiness is measured or achieved. You see, when they had put their trust in Jesus, they had been decisively made holy, set apart for God, and that is what makes them truly sanctified. Their lives probably looked like tofurkey, I think, and that's not pretty, but they needed to remember the truth about their reality, that they were holy, sanctified through what Jesus had done, 
And then they needed to not pretend to be something different. They needed to live out who they truly were. They needed to be true to who they truly had become in Christ Jesus. The second surprising truth about these Corinthians is that they have been gifted and made rich. Have a listen, verses 4 to 8. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that, here it is, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to read far into this letter before you realise that the Corinthians were impressed by giftedness. They loved gifted orators. They wanted to follow the most gifted apostle. They listened to the people that they considered to be intellectually gifted. The Corinthians had a real desire for themselves to be the most gifted one in the congregation and to follow the most gifted one in the community. But can you see how God cuts through all of that by reminding them that they have all been gifted in the most important way by Jesus? The grace that Jesus has given to every one of them has enriched them all, even in their favourite areas of speech and knowledge. But you know what? They probably didn't feel as though they had the most gifted speech and the most gifted knowledge. Because remember, they were impressed by those, those Greek gifted philosophers and orators. How has Jesus given them any kind of speech or, or knowledge that comes anywhere near those gifted Greek philosophers? How could it? Again, it's all about Jesus and the gospel that he has given them. The gospel message of salvation from sin through the sacrificial death of Jesus. It may not sound like the most impressive speech or knowledge that the world has ever heard, but it is. No other speech or knowledge has changed the world like the gospel message about Jesus. No other speech or knowledge can change a human life like the gospel message about Jesus. It's another surprising truth. If you have the gospel message about Jesus, you have been enriched in the most valuable speech and knowledge the world has ever seen. So I want to encourage you, don't take it for granted. Listen well to it. Trust in it, that gospel message about Jesus. Share it with other people who need it. Commit your life to it. It's so valuable. It's the most precious gift you will ever receive. There is no greater speech or knowledge in the world. There is one more surprising truth for these Corinthians in these verses. It is all about being guiltless on the day of God's judgment. Can you believe it? Guiltless on the day of God's judgment? Let's read from verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Guiltless? Really? Can you see how surprising this last truth is? These new Christians who are still struggling to put off all their old sins, all the old habits and live out the new reality of who they truly are now in Christ, 
The Apostle Paul is saying these struggling sinners will be guiltless on the day of God's judgment. That's incredible. You, you, you realise there's only two ways to be found guiltless, right? There's only two ways. You can probably guess them. The first one is never commit a sin in your entire life and you'll be found guiltless. Good luck if you want to try that way. You've already blown it. The only other way to be found guiltless is if your sin, your guilt before God, can somehow be taken away, dealt with. How can the Apostle Paul assure these struggling new Christians that the verdict that God will pass over their lives on his great day of judgment will be not guilty? How can he do that? How can he assure them of that? It is certainly not because they've never committed a sin. It is not that. From the letter we see sin all over the place in this new church. Can you see how good forgiveness is? Can you see why forgiveness is so important? The only reason anyone will be found guiltless on Judgment Day is because they put their trust in the Lord Jesus and through his death and resurrection, they have forgiveness. That is the only way anyone will be found guiltless. It's a beautiful, surprising truth, this third one, isn't it? That even though you and I, we are struggling sinners too, and we continue to struggle to obey God as he deserves, even when we want to try and obey him, how beautiful is it that we can be assured right now of a guiltless verdict on Judgment Day if we've put our trust in Jesus and we've been forgiven for our sins right now. I don't know whether you've noticed it, but all of these three beautiful, surprising truths, they are true for believers in Jesus, not because of anything the believer has done. They're all about Jesus, aren't they? They're all about what Jesus has done, these three surprising truths. And I want to say it's so nice when you receive something good, not because you are worthy of it, but because you kind of know the right person. It is so nice. Um, my wife and I experienced this just over summer. We, we were doing a little bit of work and, and having a little bit of long service leave in the UK. And um, we were staying with a minister in London and doing a little bit of work with his church and um, his son's in the army. And it just so happened that while we were there, his son was posted to be the captain of the guard at the Tower of London. Um, this is the Tower of London. Uh, it's a pretty impressive old kind of tower uh, on, on the banks of the Thames. And um, it costs quite a lot to get in there. And so I, I would never visit it because I'm a cheapskate. I just look from the outside. But, um, you know, on, on this particular occasion, the, the minister and his wife that I was staying with wanted to go and see their son in action, guarding the castle. And so uh, we got free tickets to go along to the last tourist ceremony of the day. And that's basically when they lock up the castle. Oh, I should say, inside the castle, they keep all this expensive bling. Can we go to the next slide? They keep all this stuff. So you've got to lock it up, all right? You can't just have anyone walking in and stealing the crown or stuff like that. So at the end of the day, they do this, uh, this ceremony to kind of, it's called the ceremony of the keys, to lock it up so that the crown stays safe, that kind of thing. And um, we, we, we got invited along to that, uh, free passes, but everyone else there, about 100 people, paid, you know, good money for it. And so I'm already feeling a bit chuffed, all right? As a cheapskate, get in for free, that's fantastic. 
Now, they did the ceremony, about an hour of people marching around and aiming guns at stuff and, you know, generally looking like they know what they're doing and they can protect the crown. Um, and after an hour, they've locked all the doors and the ceremony comes to an end. And at that point, they're about to usher all the tourists out into the night. And the head warden steps forward and said, could the guests of the captain of the guard please step forward because he would like to take you to the officer's bar for a drink. And out of these hundred tourists, my wife and I and the minister and his wife sort of, oh, hello, that, that'd be us. <laughs> Thank you. See you later, suckers. <laughs> We're off to the bar with the captain of the guard. It was so nice. I, didn't, I wasn't worthy of it. I wasn't, I mean, I hadn't even paid real money to get in. All the other tourists were more worthy than me of that privilege. And yet, knowing the right person was everything, even though I wasn't worthy. It wasn't about our worthiness. It's all about having a relationship with the right person. And for the Corinthians, can you see that that was their truth writ large? Can you see... They were not of themselves worthy to be called holy. They were not by themselves super gifted. They were not of themselves worthy to be called guiltless on judgment day. But they had entered into a relationship with the right person, Jesus Christ. And he has achieved all of those important things for them. And the, same, the exact same logic can be true for your life. You know that you're not naturally worthy to be called holy, right? Yep. You are not super gifted at everything. You haven't got every gift in the world. I, I hate to break it to you, but that's the reality. And you are not naturally guiltless before God. But all of those beautiful realities are yours when you put your trust in Jesus, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus as your saviour and your king. Now, you might still be asking, though, how all, how all of these beautiful realities can possibly be related to Tofurky. Well, here's the thing. When God has blessed you with all these beautiful realities through a relationship with Jesus, these realities now define who you are even more than all the struggles on the outside more than anything else. And if you are going to be true to yourself, these realities, if you are in Jesus, they are who you now truly are. And so the Apostle Paul takes us through a bit of a case study on this issue using unity uh, as, as the example. So we're at point two, one important unity. And I just want to stop and say here, if you're in first year and this is your first week of university, um, congratulations, it's great to have you around. And it's great that you are so keen to get to class and turn up on time and, and that'll, that'll be great for the rest of the week, I think. It'll last that long. It's wonderful. Uh, I want to encourage you in it. But you might be thinking, oh dear, I need to, you know, well, is this guy ever going to finish? Is this talk ever going to finish? Um, the whole university works on a 5-2, 5 past system. Okay, everything finish, should finish by 5-2. Every new class starts 5 past, and campus Bible study will do the same. I will be finished by 5-2 to get you to your next class you don't have to freak out about that. And it will save you from embarrassingly running out at about quarter two, going, oh, I just can't take it anymore. Uh, so you can trust me, it will be done by 5-2. All right, we're at point two, one important unity. Humans struggle with unity. You know this. 
We struggle to unite together. We're much better at separating and fighting than uniting and living out that unity. And you know the reason we struggle so much with unity? You know what it is? The reason we struggle to unite is our sin. That is why we struggle with unity. In our sin, we are selfish. In our sin, we don't always love our neighbours as we should. And in our sin, we like getting the best things for ourselves rather than sharing them with others. And this unity problem is across the world, in every country. It's why we have wars between countries like Russia and Ukraine. It's why countries need armies to protect themselves. And it's why we have things like the United Nations that are trying to achieve some kind of unity and it's really hard and it doesn't work very well. Now the young church in first century Corinth was sadly a good case study of this unity struggle. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. It seems as though these Corinthians have picked their favourite leaders and are then facing off against each other like five-year-olds in a school playground. What a mess. Did you notice Jesus has just become another factional leader in their battle? They've pitted the apostles against each other and they've pitted the apostles against their Lord. What a mess. Can you see how damaging that would be for their unity? What a rabble they've become. What a mess. And yet look at the command that the Apostle Paul gives to this rabble in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united. And here, this is incredible, united in the same mind and the same judgment. That is a huge challenge. You might have thought it would be enough for the Apostle Paul to say, just don't throw too many rocks at each other. Don't hurt each other too much. But the Apostle Paul pushes way beyond that. Paul isn't just asking them to put the weapons down. The Apostle Paul is asking them to be completely united, every one of them completely united in their thinking, united in their thinking and united in their judgments. How could that possibly happen? Well, I thought you might like to have a think about that with the person next to you. So I put the question on the screen. How could such a mixed bag of sinners possibly be united in the same mind? You've got 30 seconds. Enjoy with the person next to you. Go for it. Okay, let's try and work this out together. That was a pretty tough question, wasn't it? That, that one's not easy. Let's, let's have a think about it. My summary is this. They need to stop thinking like tofurkeys and start thinking like the glorious tofu that they truly are in Christ. You see, the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ has already truly united these believers together around Christ. That is the new reality that they have in Jesus. They need to now learn to live who they truly are. They need to be who they truly are. They need to stop carrying on like old tofurkeys and start being the new tofu. See, there, there are two ways that unity is sought in our world. One of them can never really achieve true unity and the other one achieves true unity even when it doesn't look like it. First, let me show you the false unity, the, how people attempt this false unity. And, and I've got to say, even false unity comes from a good desire to unite. 
comes from a good desire. We humans, we so desire unity that we figure that it is worthwhile uniting even if we have to fake it. That's what we, that's what we figure. So we decide that we don't actually have to agree with each other or even like each other. We just need to try and get along. But that's not real unity, is it? That's, that's a, it's, it's a good attempt, but it's, wow, it's, it's not very united. It comes from a good desire, but it can never really work. And you can see the underlying problem. The underlying problem is that we don't actually think alike. The underlying problem is we don't actually agree with each other, and you can't overcome that simply by trying to put up with each other. It's a fundamental underlying problem. This is what happens in the United Nations, why unity is so hard. It happens in parliamentary parties. It happens in university departments. And sadly, it even happens in churches and Christian ministries. We fundamentally disagree with each other, but we try to bury our differences and just get along because we know that unity is good. Do you know, this week in England, the Church of England has sadly shown us this attempt at unity. You might have heard that the governing body of the Church of England met this week. Um, they're called the Synod, the Synod, the governing body, and they voted that in their churches they will now bless same-sex civil unions. That's uh, same-sex marriages. They will bless them by praying for them. They, they won't hold a marriage ceremony for them, but they'll bless them as, as though God is happy with that. But, you know, there's still lots of Christians in the Church of England who actually want to believe what the Bible says, who want to believe and still believe that God's plan for marriage, as it has been since he created it, is to be a lifelong exclusive union between a man and a woman. And they believe that to step outside of that plan or to change that plan is actually sin. Now, many people in the Church of England will push for unity. They will say, look, we'll all just get along despite our, our differences. And we'll just play happy church. But that is not real Christian unity. There is only one foundation for true Christian unity, and that is the truth of the gospel. That is what unites us. Christians are united by the truth about Jesus that we believe. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in verses 13 to 17. 13 to 17, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptised none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptised in my name. I did baptise also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 13 tells us that it's all about Jesus. Jesus is not divided. It was Jesus who was crucified for you, not Paul. And Christians are baptised into the name of Jesus and no other human because it's all about Jesus. Even the human baptising you isn't really that important. Paul can't even remember who he, who he baptised in Corinth. When it comes down to it, it's not about the human act of baptising. It's all about Jesus and what he has done at the cross. The truth about Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection, that is what unites all true Christian believers. All true believers are united by that truth because believing in that truth unites you to Jesus. And if you're united with Jesus, you are united with everyone else who is united with Jesus. 
And that surprisingly then says that this truth means we are united with all true Christians even before we have met them because we're united in the true Jesus. Now, I noticed this, I'm sorry about all the English illustrations today, but I I noticed this in England. I went to 12 really good student ministries, university student ministries around the, the UK and I noticed some of these guys I'd never met before. I'd never met a single person in this ministry or in this church. But because they believed the truth about Jesus, it was like we'd known each other for a lifetime. It was amazing unity with people just because they believe the truth about Jesus, they're united with Jesus and so am I. It was incredible. True Christian unity is all about the truth that unites us to Jesus. But sadly, and I've got to tell you this, the reverse side of the coin is also true. There are groups on this campus, right here at UNSW, that call themselves Christians that I am not united with. And you are not united with if you are a true believer in Jesus because they do not believe the truth about Jesus. One of these groups goes by the name International Christian Church, although they also call themselves the UNSW Lions. And someone told me yesterday there's another name. Uh, they, They change their name frequently because they want to conceal the truth that they are a cult. I am not united with them because they don't believe the truth about Jesus. They say that you need to be baptised in their church to be a true Christian. Can you see what that does? It means that salvation is then by the death of Jesus and getting baptised in the right church. They've changed the gospel. I am not united with them because they are not believing the truth of the gospel. Be careful of them. The same is true for the Jehovah's Witnesses who stand just outside the university gate with their little stands of reading material. Have you seen them there as you come in uh, Anzac Parade? They're often there. They want you to believe that they are Christians and that they are just like you, but they don't believe Jesus is God. Again, who are we united with? We are united with all those who believe the truth about Jesus. True Christian unity is only truth through the truth of the gospel. Because it's only the truth that unites us to Jesus. If you have believed the truth about Jesus, you right now are truly united with Jesus. And that means you are truly united with every other true believer in Jesus throughout the world and throughout history. That's the precious unity that you have when you believe the truth about Jesus. And that is the truth about your life. That is who you truly are. You don't even need to create unity with other true Christians. You already have it. It's already yours. You're already united with all those who truly love Jesus. What do you need to do? You need to be who you truly are. You need to be true to yourself and live out the unity that Jesus has already given you. You also don't have to pretend to have unity with everyone who claims to be a Christian, but who doesn't believe the truth of the gospel. That's just tofurky. They're just something else pretending to be Christian. True unity comes through the true gospel. So, I want to encourage you to believe it, to be united in it and to live out that unity. Be true to yourself 
and live it out in everything you do. Let's pray. Our Father God, thanks for this challenging passage that really reminds us that everything we have, we have only because the Lord Jesus has given it to us. Thank you so much for his death in our place, offering us the opportunity to be holy, to be fully gifted in every way and to be guiltless on judgment day. Father, we thank you that Jesus unites us with all who truly know him and who truly believe in him. And we pray that you'll help us to be true to who we truly are and live out that unity, Father. We pray this so that Jesus might be glorified as he deserves. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.